dethrone the RBA and make cash king again. And China syndrome reversed, a massive opportunity for Australia. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 20th of October 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing updates on the war on cash and the push to digitalisation, how that's affecting things. And a big breakthrough in our fight against it. Yes, and another type of breakthrough, and that is on the nuclear power front regarding both fission and fusion forms of nuclear energy happening in China, which would have a big impact if adopted here in Australia, if yeah, we, we call follow it, that lead. It, a, it, the, the breakthrough is in China, and that's why we call it reverse China syndrome, because there was a movie about a nuclear disaster in America going to melt through the ground to China. That's why it was called the China syndrome. Hmm. So actually now what China's done um, is show the world a lot of opportunities for nuclear, especially a country like Australia. Yeah, so stay tuned for that story later. Uh, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe and ring the notifications bell. We'll alert you of new shows upcoming and share and comment uh, as widely as you can. So on to the first topic straight away. Uh, dethrone the RBA and make cash king again. Of course, this has been a big story we've followed over many years, uh, protecting uh, people's access to cash. And we have breaking news on um, one of the fronts that will assure access to cash, which is our campaign for a people's postal bank. Yep. So we have two more um, Shire Councils that have endorsed our well, a resolution. Shire, a, a Shire Council, Flinders Shire Council in Queensland, which is headquartered in Hewenden in central Queensland, and the Wagga, Wagga City Council in southern New South Wales um, have both passed motions unanimously endorsing the Postal Bank. That brings the total now to um, seven. Last week I wrote to all of them in Australia and they're all reading the letters and they're all raising in council meetings and um, we can expect many more of these. So, and, and Elisa, what's driving it is the closure of, of um, mm. regional, regional banks, right? Regional branches. Um, we've got a video to play, which is, you'll see the, the councillor who moved the motion, uh, Richard Foley, he'll be talking first to the motion. And then the councillor who seconded him, um, Deputy Mayor Jenny McKinnon, speaks. And it's just an example, and so they have a chance to have a say before there's a vote, and the, and the result of the vote is unanimous. But just listen to these two councillors reflect the need for this policy in the area. Yep. Thanks, Mr Mayor. Um, look, I heard a report on the radio yesterday morning about... Uh, Centrelink offices, which I'll just briefly report to you. And that was to do with the fact that although Centrelink is now basically 100% available, everything that they do online, they have committed to keeping all of their current Centrelink offices open because they recognise that there are 3 million Australians who cannot access internet for one reason or another. So that might be to do with the cost of internet bundles, for example. It could be to do with where they live and the actual, uh, you know, accessibility. So the idea of having access, you know, to in-person services is really important to a significant uh, portion of our population. 
So there's that. Um, the other thing is I think a lot of mistakes have been made in Australia around getting rid of our, our Commonwealth Bank, selling it off and um, selling off our various utilities and, you know, uh, water, energy, etc. So I'm all for something that is, I think it's a great name, the People's Bank. Um, as for how this will fly, I don't know, but I think the concept of us of Australia having a people's bank is a, is a really nice thing to do. So I'm I'm certainly prepared to support it. Thank you. Councillor McKinnon, any other councillors? Oh, sorry, I keep looking at the screen. He's not in this item. Um, having said that, I'll move back to a right of reply and you have another chance to submit council yeah thank you thank you um uh, i had something in my head then it's just forgotten it um <laughs> you look, 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's for you right <laughs> no, look, you know, just, look the, the end of the day you know it's it's i think more people are getting more more upset about the 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 Society having more and more things taken away and being and being pushed onto online. Now I'm an advocate of online stuff. I'm right into online world, but I mean, there's many people who aren't. I mean, there's many people who just simply can't access mobile towers because they just don't have any. So I mean, I don't know how they get in, let alone look at social media, let alone their bank accounts. So I, I just uh, it, it's obviously a matter that, that the government uh, it will uh, take seriously if more councils join on board. At this stage, only five councils, including I think a city one. In Strathfield have, have, have done similar, but more are coming on board, and I think the more of us that do it, uh, I'd like to see the uh, new government uh, do this. And of course, the farming banking sector, the, the, the big end of town won't like it, but uh, that's that's uh, neither here nor there. But anyway, look, thank you very much. We're, uh, thank you for your support. If you indeed support it, thank you. Thanks, Councillor Foley. Having said that, I will put the motion all in favour. That's unanimous. Thank you. So yeah, we're we're generating those kind of discussions all around Australia at, at uh, council level, Elisa. And what happens is once the council passes the resolution, part of the process is to say, okay, now get the mayor or the CEO or whatever to, to write letters to the politicians saying this is what we've done, right? And at a certain point, it'll dawn on mm -hmm. the politicians that hey. This is taken off right around the country. Yeah, it's not just people writing to them like yeah. citizens. It's these are various councils and other agencies, so that has a big impact. Um, now, the other thing that was in the news this week was, of course, Westpac's announcement that they were going to close another 23 branches affecting all states, and that'll bring their total to 95 closures in the last four months just for Westpac. Um, the finance sector union has called on the government to intervene to stop this, of course, everything they've done so far, particularly the Regional Banking Task Force, has not put any penalties no. in place, any mechanisms in place to fix this problem. Look, this is, this is um, a big part of the problem. The politicians sit by impotent while this is happening, right? Even at the most basic level, let me explain something to the viewers. The big four banks especially, they have an implicit government guarantee. They are too big to fail. That means you, the taxpayer, fund the government, which will not let those banks ever go bankrupt. There has to be a quid pro quo for that, right? They're not normal businesses. They are propped up ultimately by taxpayers. They have a taxpayer guarantee. Well, serve the taxpayer. And we're going to play a clip mm. from Channel 10's report on this last night. But, but, but you'll see, I want you to pay attention to what the Finance Sector Union Secretary says at the end. 
about this, and I'll talk about that a bit more um, uh, afterwards, but she makes the point about there's no reason for these um, uh, branches to close, in, in, that the banks can afford to keep them open. Mm. That's the most important thing. They're not, they're not unprofitable. This is the banks being really aggressive here. And the other point I want to make before we throw to it, we've got a lot of regular viewers of this show. Thanks for, thanks for being regular viewers. How many times have you regular viewers of this show watched us play these kind of clips this, just this year? Not, it's like not a week goes by before more announcements of bank branch closures. This is really aggressive, and you'll see actually some figures on this clip of the last five years. Anyway, have a look. Westpac has announced the shutdown of another 23 branches across the country, a decision the big bank puts down to more customers going digital. But the move has been slammed by the Finance Sector Union as calls grow for a federal government inquiry into branch closures. Being able to go into a local branch used to be something you could bank on, but the number of branches is on a steep decline. Um, since the start of 2020, we've seen more than 600 branches of the Big Four close their doors right across Australia. In the past three months, Westpac has announced the closure of 72 branches. Today came another 23 to be axed right across the country. I think it's terrible for people who depend on them um, and don't have the means of getting to another branch. Look, it is a little bit disappointing because you don't get that um, personal approach anymore. Hay in regional New South Wales will lose one of only three branches that operates in the town. Um, we have quite an elderly population in Hay. It's an ageing population. A lot of them cannot and will not use internet banking. But according to Westpac, a significant shift in how people are choosing to bank as more customers go online and a decline in the number of customers who use branches are behind the cuts. It's not the only big bank scrapping bricks and mortar business. In the last five years, the number of bank branches across the country has dropped from more than 5,500 to just over 4,000. This latest announcement comes weeks after a regional banking task force found the big banks could be doing more to support customers when a local branch closes. There's now calls for a federal government inquiry into the shutdown of bank branches across the country. We know that these banks can afford to keep every one of these banks open. They're just choosing not to. They're choosing profits over people. In the meantime, Westpac intends to close the branches identified towards the end of this year and early next year. Close to 100 jobs will be impacted. Samara Gardner for 10 News First. Yeah, that's what, like I said, Lisa, how many times have we seen that? sort of report in the last five years. But I'm really happy that Julia Angrisano of the Finance Sector Union said what she said. That is the bottom line. I'll tell you why I know that's the bottom line. Because as part of, we'll talk about Dale Webster in a minute, but she got me to think about this. Um, I started looking at um, what they call the, the, the uh, community banks. And these are banks where they had no other branches, but the community needed a bank branch. So they entered in a relationship with a bank like Bendigo and said, we will provide all the infrastructure, you provide the banking, right? And they provide the office, so they raise money to do that, etc. You can go and read their annual reports of these community banks. They're all, every one of those community banks is profitable. That, that's not profits from the interest, income, etc. that the bank gets on deposits or, or on loans. They don't get any of that. They are profitable... Um, 
just in terms of the, the, the particular charges, et cetera, they have, they're even able to pay dividends back into the local community. Mm. If a community bank can be profitable, it tells you all these branches are profitable. That's not the issue. And Julia Angrisano is right. So, um, yeah, you've got to call them out. Where's the trade-off? And that's why. What is the solution? The postal bank. You've got to force them to compete and scare the heck out of them, right, so that they realise, hang on, if we keep closing our branches, we're going to lose customers to the government's bank. And that's, the only, that's what worked in New Zealand. That's the only thing that will work here. Exactly. And talking about uh, bank branches, and you know that we've been reporting it continuously, we don't report them all. But someone who is on top of all the closures is Dale Webster from the Regional, independent journalist, award-winning journalist. Uh, and she's had a breakthrough this week because she had pointed out that a lot of um, bank branches that are listed by APRA as being functioning bank branches are not real bank branches. No. Anything that doesn't, that there's a, there's a long-standing definition of a bank branch and a bank branch has to take uh, cash deposits and give change. So not even having a machine that mm. allows you to deposit your business takings in is enough. You've got to be able to give change as well. That's the long-standing definition of a bank branch. APRA by law is required to keep this database of all functioning bank branches around Australia. And earlier this year, we played the clip at the time, Dale Webster provided information to Senator Malcolm Roberts and he went and asked the boss of APRA, Wayne Byers, questions and showed him that there's all these, the banks have um, sneakily moved to all these cashless branches and they were still counted in APRA's database. You know what, Lisa, there's an $11,000 fine for, for the bank for each misreport to APRA. Hmm. APRA wasn't enforcing this. Because it's a weak, we rate and rave about ASIC a lot at the moment. APRA's just as weak a regulator, right? Now, as pointed out, and the breakthrough is this week, now, the new figures have come out. The, the, it's called the Points of Presence Database. And the updated Points of Presence Database was released by APRA on Wednesday. And these cashless branches are no longer counted as branches. So what Dale Webster is actually in the middle of doing is counting all the legit branches that there are in Australia to come up with a new figure of what are the total number of branches in regional Australia, right? And that'll, that could be a shock to a lot of people. And it sort of, it'll be in the lines of what that clip said, where five years ago there was 56, more than 5,600 bank branches in Australia, and now there's um, 4,014. And 4,014, by the way, there are now fewer bank branches mm. of all banks in Australia, according to Channel 10's report there, fewer than post offices. Mm. Yeah, that's so. If we start shocking. a post office bank with with four thousand three hundred or something access points, mm -hmm. right? Nearly three thousand of them licensed post office small businesses spread right across Australia. We'll put up the map again. The best, not only is it the biggest retail footprint in Australia, it's the best distributed retail footprint yeah. in Australia, right? If we start, a, <laughs> if every one of those is a bank, not only will you have easy access to any bank to banking services wherever you are. That will spook the big banks more than anything else. Yeah. Now, I want to um, give an update which parallels this from Europe now because um, especially with um, various breakdowns in the economy in Europe, um, shortages of power and so forth, these kinds of issues, and we've seen it in Australia from yeah. floods to fires to power outages, um, it's becoming a very big issue. So... 
some news is that coming out of Finland, what's rather interesting is that the head of the payments system department and chief cashier at the Bank of Finland, their central bank, Parvi Hakkinen, on national television on the 12th of October has urged people to keep cash in case payment systems are interrupted, which could be from a cyber attack she mentioned or from other reasons. She pointed out that disruptions in the worst case scenario could last for weeks, so people should have cash on, on hand. She said a sing having a single payment method is not good enough. She said, quote, cash still plays a very important role, so as a backup. And in March, uh, the Finland Central Bank in actually initiated legislation to protect cash usage. Now, the number of banks distributing banknotes in Finland has been cut by nearly half in the last 15 years, from 1,600 to 850 nationwide. ATMs fell from 2,500 20 years ago to 1,500 today. Similarly, in the United Kingdom, um, the British banking regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has just decided to make banks consult with local communities if they're going to reduce uh, their opening hours or cut any services, including ATMs. They already had to consult on closing the full branch, but now they have to consult on you know, anything that they change. Reduction in services, yep. But which is, again, a very mealy-mouthed way, similar to Pretty recommendations weak, like, yep. made by our own banking task force here. Yep. It's not going to make any difference. It's not going to cut it. But the British Post Office reported, meanwhile, a record amount of cash handed over in August, and they've had multiple records being made continually in the recent period. And they put that down to, quote, ongoing closure of local bank branches. Over 430 branches just shut this year. The Herald in Scotland reported that 47% of the 1,000 bank branches they had in 2015 are now closed. In 2020, the British Treasury had announced it would prepare legislation uh, similarly to what Finland's looking at, to protect cash access, and it launched a consultation on this in 2021. That proposal would establish geographic requirements, like we have with Australia Post, I might add, for provision of cash facilities and designate outlets to meet those requirements and would also add regulatory oversight to protect cash services. Now, that bill was tabled in the Parliament in July, just gone, and is now in the committee phase in the House of Commons. So it means that deliberations are going on over the language and what it you know, presents and so forth. Yeah, so what is it? What we're seeing in Europe, Elisa, is a widespread recognition that there is no substitute for a healthy cash economy, right? You, you can have all your utopian harebrained ideas in the world about being digital and whatever, and it's all vulnerable. It's great while it works, but expect it quite often not to work for mm -hmm. any number of reasons. Now, some of what you're talking about in Finland there would be partly, um, a, you know, a consequence of the awareness of the door of the war on its doorstep, right? That sort of thing. But it's not. But there's there's multiple reasons. And Australia, the, the 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 land of droughts and flooding rains and big bushfires. I mean, we have more than our fair share of those very reasons, mm -hmm. right? So why is this all the rage in Europe, this, this acknowledgement? Because what Finland's doing is on the tails of what Sweden's already done, legislate to say we, we went too far down the cashless path, go mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. Yet our politicians are whistling past the graveyard, right? Like, no, it doesn't matter. It does matter. 
Stop doing it. Stop allowing the banks to do it. And we're going to do more on this um, soon, but um, Westpac has also debanked more cash and transit carriers. And cash and transit carriers, I did an interview with one um, last year, Paul Thomas, who was debanked by Westpac. And these are like Armaguard, et cetera, but these are smaller independent ones. And they serve ATMs and, and um, cash uh, remittance companies, et cetera, right? And make sure that the cash is needed where it goes. Now, the RBA has said that they will that they've got no intentions of get rid of cash, but their main, the main way the RBA distributes cash through the economy is via, it has this account system with the big four banks, and then they hire the, the infrastructure, et cetera, right? But there's a conflict of interest because the RBA says, no, we're not gonna get rid of cash, but the way they get cash out through the economy is through four big banks that all wanna get rid of cash. Mm -hmm. Right, so the whole, you know, the, the thing. This is what our politicians have allowed to happen, and we have to absolutely reverse it. And we're not picking on a small issue here and, and making a mountain out of a molehill. This is a. You'll know how big it is when it's gone. Yeah. Right, and that's that's why we should be learning from Europe. Now, talking about the RBA, because we, we did have this headline, dethrone the RBA and yeah. make cash king again, and we want to talk about now the RBA's role in um, basically creating a greater um, vulnerability <laughs> to uh, interruptions like we've been discussing in Europe, outages, cyber attacks, financial crises, all kinds of things, because, I mean, we wouldn't say dethrone the RBA if the RBA was a national bank, right? No, of course. And, and what I said about the RBA saying that they're not going to get rid of cash, that's the RBA's PR. I wouldn't trust oh, yeah. the RBA we'll, on we'll that. We'll talk about that in right? a moment. They, but what they're doing that you're about to go through mm -hmm. shows you how they think, and it's a real worry. So they're not acting as a national bank, and they're not acting in the interests of the nation, but rather because of the independence of central banking, which is you know, a great sacred cow and has been for a long time, um, they are following the dictates of the International Banking Fraternity from the Bank for International Settlements on down um, that are driving right now a complete digitalisation of the entire banking framework and getting rid of cash is a key part of that. Um, so they, what they've created through setting up what's called the new payments platform launched in 2018 by the Reserve Bank, the Big Four Banks and BPAY, which is owned by the Big Four Banks and coordinated by KPMG, the whole project, uh, is a concentration of payment systems that's left us absolutely exposed to these various kinds of interruptions. Firstly, it's created a dependence on the SWIFT architecture, which is the interbank settlement architecture that, as we've seen in recent months, has locked out a country like Russia because certain major powers deem Russia to be... Well, it's uh, SWIFT is controlled by the United States and it uses SWIFT to punish countries through sanctions, right? And, and, and it's actually backfiring on them, but what... Yeah, and, and we should be noticing that it's backfiring on them. A lot of countries are looking for ways around SWIFT. Mm -hmm. we're, setting up a we're setting up a payments platform that yeah. is entirely based on this thing that gives someone in Washington the power to flick a switch on our whole economy. Yep. That's crazy. So it uses the SWIFT architecture, the national payment, the new payments platform. It uses the architecture. It was built by SWIFT. They provided the technology. So this gives an enormous geopolitical exposure yep. in this period, which is quite 
uh, a risk. Uh, next, it creates a single payment infrastructure because what you had was the amalgamation of BPay Group and FPOS with the new payments platform. And this was all approved by the ACCC despite the fact that, as one legal analysis said, it may substantially lessen competition, but it will result supposedly in net public benefits. Well, will it? I think the jury's out on that. Um, because one of the... Can I, I, I can jump the gun on the jury. <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> and we'll see some examples of that. But um, one of the reasons you know, one of the things that is set up by this concentration with this single payments infrastructure is that the RBA has effectively become the middleman for all transactions, for all settlements. And so when you have an outage like we had on the 12th of October with the OSCO, O-S-K-O, that this is the system that um, runs the payment system so that if I make a payment to you, um, it comes out of my yeah. bank account straight away, you get it immediately. So even though it hasn't had time to go through all the banking motions, that's instant because the RBA backs that up. Yeah. So let me interrupt for a second. Just to explain why and how. This was part of the motivation for creating an alternative to cash because if you transact in cash, it's done. You give the cash, you get your change, it's done. No... Bookwork or... No, nothing left to do. Electronics or... Right, nothing left to do. When you transfer electronically, um, they said we need to have something that's instant, to be, else it won't be able to rival cash. We won't be able to get people away from cash if it's not instant. So the whole selling point of the new payments platform, this is instant. But they actually can't process it instantly. So the RBA, you, you're paying me, right? Um, the RBA can tell you're paying me. The RBA pays me. It puts up the money. So it's, I feel like I've got it instantly, and then the processing is done overnight for the RBA to get the money off you via your bank, right? And in that meantime, the RBA is carrying the can, because it's supposed to be a substitute for cash for all transactions in the country, it's carrying the can for an enormous number of transactions and amount of money in transit, and it's, it's, it's honouring all of them. Well, this is where it gets interesting because that OSCO payment system was interrupted for about five hours and this was between 7.01pm and 12.34pm. And that's the outside of business hours is where the RBA um, is, you know, really carrying the can because they're, according to their own information, um, they cover the liquidity for these real-time payments outside of banking hours using open dated repos which are repo, repo, repos are repurchase agreements that we've talked about on the show many times before in the past. It's a very short-term funding market that allows the central bank to inject or withdraw liquidity from the banking system. So what I would like to know from the RBA is during that five hours, where was the money? I mean, you know, if you were a speculator, how yeah. much money could you make? So I pay you and it's taken from my account during that five-hour block, but you don't get you it don't. until the end of that five-hour block. If you were a speculator in that five hours, you could go and invest that money and make a packet, make a mint out of it. So are we supposed to just take the RBA's word that this was just, as they called it, an internal system engineering issue? What evidence do they have of that? Because um, people may be aware the RBA in its own balance sheet is significantly in the red because of its 
bond buying programs that were run over the last two years to inject quantitative easing into the banking yeah. system. Um, but the bigger point is that um, any kind of outages to a system like this where it's a single infrastructure, whether it be a power outage, some so-called um, engineering disruption or a cyber attack or something, could actually threaten the entire financial system. Because if you have interruptions of payments, not necessarily outside of hours, but at a critical moment when the financial system is already so fragile and teetering on the edge, this could set off anything. Now, the other factor I wanted to raise is that this new payments platform relies on third-party data holders, right? So um, all of the data for these payments to take place, particularly because you have systems like PayID, where instead of if I want to pay you, I have, would normally have to give you my bank account BSB yep. number. Pay ID sets up a system where I can just give you my email address or my name or my phone number, I should say, and that's all. I don't have to give you that string of numbers. That's because I've got my bank account details with this third party that yep. looks after that data. And as well as Pay ID, there's another system called Trust ID, which takes that even further so that for all of the services that you use on the internet, you don't have to have different passwords for all of them, including to get government services, um, Centrelink and things like that. So basically, if there is a breach of that third party data, you're talking about a mammoth exposure, not just one entity, but this is all one massive system. That's right. Everyone's data is in one or two places and people are going to be looking for and, it. And everyone's data is in that one yeah. you know, third party setup, which is probably offshore. Um, <laughs> now, this is, you know, interesting happening in this context because, of course, the Optus um, hack breached nearly 10 million people's information um, at different levels. They didn't all get all, the, all of their information taken. But um, so just Optus alone, nearly 10 million people. We've had Medibank Private, MyDeal, we had Realty Assist, which is this uh, operation that services real estate companies in, based in Perth, which included data stolen from OSCO payment transfers. Now, in response to all of this, it's, a, it's even a worse picture because the discussion right now is for amendments to regulations so that companies can share your data with the banks so that the banks can check your account and make sure there's no fraudulent transactions going on because your data was breached. <laughs> so that's nice. Let, 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 us help the banks. let us help. Let's give you some more information. Um, new cybersecurity laws are being discussed, updates to privacy laws and um, furthering the pursuit of a national digital identity system, which again further concentrates yeah. it all, which the coalition put up last year and which is being adopted. Well, you know, the, obviously the Labor government now will pursue it. Um, now, add to that picture, while all of this is going on, uh, on the 26th of September, the Reserve Bank just released a white paper for a CBDC, a Central Bank Digital Currency Pilot Program, which will run from, I think, January to April next year. So they'll do a, you know, closed trial of this within certain people that want to, groups that want to participate. Um, now, we talked about cash, you know, before whether the RBA will continue to honour it. Well, in that white paper, they state, quote, the RBA's research into CBDC does not reflect any intention to discontinue access to physical cash. The RBA is committed to ensuring Australians continue to have good access to physical cash for as long as people need or want to use it. 
Well, in 2020, the RBA actually said that it would be costly to, quote, support two different types of central bank currency and that that raised an argument, quote, for removing cash yes. from the system. So all these vulnerabilities we've talked about, at least we still have cash as an alternative. But the big question is, um, if we go down that pathway of a central bank digital currency, will they remove cash? Now, Elisa... In 2020, when the RBA said that maintaining two different payment systems would be an argument for removing cash, that was also the year we defeated the the legislation to ban cash transactions over $10,000. And um, the RBA clearly saw that and started to backpedal after it made that statement. That's why consistently since then it said, no, we're going to support physical cash as long as it's needed, which is why I raised the Paul Thomas story earlier, because if it's the big four banks through which the RBA distributes cash through the economy and they are in effect the ones who reflect back to the RBA how much demand there is and they're, yep. they're aggressively trying to stop cut demand by how? Shutting down branches, ripping out ATMs and turning around saying, oh, there's no demand, everyone wants mm. to go digital. That is a complete conflict of interest. We have to change that system. So you'll hear more about that um, in the future. Mm. But everything about this is... Um, uh, pear-shaped. From a practical standpoint, mm. it's a huge vulnerability. People do. We have to be very careful of civil liberties here. Look, I understand technology is going to evolve and improve and get smarter and be more convenient and all those things are going to happen. And that's fine. What we're talking about is assist. Is whatever happens in the technology area that affects payments, they must never mandate that you have to go down that path. It should only ever be voluntary, right? They must provide a basic um, level of a cash payment system. That's the lesson that we're getting from Europe. And so how how would we guarantee that? Our vision of a postal bank would be that because Mm. one of the motives for the private banks, apart from whatever big brother tendencies they have, but one of the motives is clearly profit. When all transactions are digital, they, get a, they can get a cut of everything and they get your data because they can monetize the data, right? More profits for the banks. So you would have a postal bank that is not there to look for every way to maximize profit. It's there to say, we are here to make sure that face-to-face banking services never disappear in Australia, right? And part of that is making sure that that's the place to go and get cash. It's a right? service for the it's customers. A service. That's how you defeat the cash, mm. this, this war on cash. I just got one last thing on the Big Brother stuff. Because, you know, um, a lot of people equate Big Brother with governments. And I understand why. Of course they should. Um, that's why you have some countries have bills of rights and whatever, and you have, you know, high courts to take, to take up issues with. Though, in the last, you, you and I and our party in, for the last 20 years are documented in the post 9-11 era. A lot of civil liberties have been thrown out the window in the name of fighting terrorism and whatnot. So people tend to think about it as, as governments. Start thinking about it as corporations. I mean, that's one of the lessons of the last two years with COVID where all the censorship, no one could stop you from saying what you wanted to say on the street, but they could stop you online because they're private corporations. And private corporations, I don't care about freedom of speech or anything like that. So we saw all that. Um, and now what you're describing is they're setting up as a response to this, giving corporations more power, right, where they're going to be, our data, companies will be able to share our data with the bank so the bank can cross-reference what we're telling it with what our data says, right? I remember 2012, 10 years ago, Hmm. I went to Sydney for a citizens' party meeting up there, and whatever suburb it was, I went and parked, 
Um, and I had to, it took me a bit to find a car park because I was unfamiliar with the area. And then the parking meter didn't take cash. So I had to wave my card at the parking meter and, and register to pay for my parking and went inside to the meeting. One minute, I'm walking, from, I'm walking into the building and I get a call, like it's literally a minute later, I get a call, hi, this is the Commonwealth Bank, we just noticed that you've used your credit card in Sydney. <laughs> I'm thinking, huh? <laughs> Thanks for keeping an eye on me, boys, yeah. right? Talk about close, close monitoring. Oh, um, all the alarm bells must be going off in CBA headquarters. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, look, that, that capacity for that to be abused and turn into Big Brother is, was already alarming then, it's getting worse, mm. right? With cash, we have we we have a way way of a, a happy medium where people's privacy can be respected, the economy can continue to work under all circumstances, and these guys don't get too much power like they already mm. are. Now you can read more about that um, story in our Australian Alert Service of this week, um, and you can contact us to find out how you can subscribe to that. Um, but I just wanted to mention before we move on the press release we put out uh, Wednesday. A public post office bank is just what Aussie small businesses need. Have a read of that. We'll link to it below. Um, because if you haven't already, go to your local council, write them a letter, send it to them by email, mail it to them, however you like. Because some of these breakthroughs we've been getting yeah. have literally come just because that someone on that council that got that email was excited about it. And put it forward. Well, I want to name her. Hazel Kleinow, a supporter in, in Queensland, wrote to a whole bunch of councils. And her letter was read by the Flinders Council, Shire Council in um, Hewenden. And on the basis of her letter, they unanimously passed a motion to support the bank. Yeah. So, and what I said earlier, we have, in the last two weeks, we have written to every single council in Australia. So you please write your letters now because they've got a proper... Properly, all the you know you you might worry you can't present all the information properly. I've done all that. That's in a letter. Mm. What a letter from you does, an email from you does to the councils is show them the local support this too. Yeah, that's right? important. Send a letter saying pass a resolution for a, or a motion for a postal bank. Okay, next topic: China syndrome reversed a massive opportunity for Australia. So there's been a lot of talk in Australia about at the need to go nuclear there's more voices speaking in favor of it than we've ever seen before in our you know 30 year history plus history as a party but can i say but the, the, the there's a counter there's a reaction to it as well right the labor party is stuck in the arguments of the 70s and 80s mm. i'm going to give you two examples now i'm going to say these examples if our clever producer <coughs> can find videos stick the video in um, ben, over me talking, so I'll pause now in case you can do that. And after all those years of acting like an opposition in exile sitting on the government benches, what have the Liberals learned from their defeat? Absolutely nothing. They take no responsibility for the mess that they've left, and they show no interest in helping to clean it up. Indeed, in a rare moment of clarity, one of them recently declared, we don't have policies, we're the opposition. <laughs> the only suggestion they've put forward is a rather extraordinary idea that we should move to the most expensive form of new energy and embrace nuclear power. Delegates, we've got the light on the hill. They want to glow in the dark. 
But anyway, okay, the two examples are on the weekend, the Labor Party had their state conference in Sydney at the Town Hall like they do, and I've been there in the past on George Street handing out flyers to these Labor Party people. So Albo addressed it, right, because New South Wales is his hometown, Sydney's his hometown, and he went after the Liberals on nuclear power. Now remember, forget the fact that it's Liberals supporting nuclear power. Pay attention to the fact that it's the Citizens Party who have honestly supported nuclear power for decades, not, not opportunists like the Liberals, right? That's why nuclear power is credible. Don't think because the Liberals support it, it's not credible. Anyway, so he's, he's having a dig at the Liberals, and he had this line, and someone would have laboured over this line, Elisa, and oh, thought yeah. it's a killer line, yeah. oh. right? This is a killer <laughs> line, right? And so Albo delivered it perfectly, having a crack at Dutton. He says, we, the Labor Party, we are the light on the hill, they want you to glow in the dark. <laughs> and everyone clapped mm. and laughed and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, all that is is fear-mongering because mm. that's all they've got. They, we're about to go through stuff they can't engage with. Yeah. And the other one was Robbie Catter jumped up um, in question time in, in, the New South, in the Queensland Parliament and asked Anastasia Palaszczuk a question about nuclear power this week. And all Anastasia Palaszczuk could do was use ridicule and fear-mongering. Mm. Right? Oh, who's, who wants to have it in their backyard? Yeah. Whereas opinion well, polls show young people in Australia do not have the fear of nuclear power because they shouldn't that older people were conditioned to have back in the 70s and the 80s. Yep. So we're going to look at a, a few different things that China's doing because it's leading the world in new technologies on the nuclear front. So first of all is the thorium breeding molten salt reactor. And the 2nd of August this year, the Chinese uh, Ministry of Ecology and Environment commissioned a trial of one of these reactors, which is in the, is at Wuwei City in the Gobi Desert. And this reactor was, it's already been built, it's all ready to go. The pilot will provide heating to a thousand homes and then it will be scaled up if all goes well to provide heating to a hundred thousand homes by 2030. And then that'll be a transition into commercial operation. Let me just explain the, the pilot. So, like they've been, they didn't just start this in August. They've been, it's been going for either two or four years. But that was all, that, they got it, they built it, they've been ironing out all the kinks. Mm. Commissioning it means turning it on, this thing is now producing power. And they're going to do it in this scaled up, this way that they can scale it up. Yeah, that's right. right. Because this is, a, this is revolutionary nuclear technology. So it, it's actually testing two new technologies. One is the lithium fuel source and use and the second is the use of molten salt as a coolant. So these reactors don't need water yep. as a coolant. So you can operate them in deserts and so forth. Um, the nuclear reaction takes place in hot liquid salt. Um, and as I said, the molten salt also acts as a coolant, so water is not required. The meltdown risk is much reduced because when you have a water coolant in your reactor, that water requires constant pressurisation and if that pressurisation is lost because power goes or something uh, is interrupted, then that's when you get the risk of meltdown. And I should say that's, that's, that's the reduced risk of one type of um, uh, safety measure against meltdowns, right? It has other inbuilt redundancies of safety measures as well, even if the whole thing didn't work. But this is fantastic. A nuclear power station that doesn't require water because you can literally put them everywhere and yeah. then and then if Albanese gets up in the parliament and says to the to the to the other side who wants one of these in their electorate the member for Durack in western australia the world's biggest electorate 
can get up and say, I'll have it in mind because you can put it somewhere in the middle of Western Australia, mm -hmm. literally in the middle of the desert, nowhere near anybody, totally safe, even in the worst possible meltdown, mm -hmm. right? And it'll run perfectly because it uses molten salt as a coolant. And you know what? And the thorium part is, we're, and lithium, we're yeah. full of it. Australia is loaded with this stuff. Mm, and China's doing it because they're full of it too. Um, they won't have to necessarily buy uranium from countries like us that are giving them a hard time. Um, but the other thing about it is the nuclear waste issue is not a big issue because after its initial, I think, five-year cycle, it starts to recycle the thorium and reuse the thorium and it produces a certain amount of uranium that it then recycles and reuses. It can reuse waste from other reactors. This is where, you know, the half-life comes in handy because if you think about, you know, how long it takes for radioactive matter to decay, well, we're taking advantage mm. of that. We're, that that radioactivity means there's energy there yeah. to be had. Yeah. So these new technologies say, right, let's um, create a greater capability to access that power. Why have nuclear waste? There's something there to use. Let's use it. And so this is a much improved technology on previous capabilities. And by the way, this technology for the molten salt um, thorium reactor was around in 1965 to 69 when the US did a trial of it and it was successful. However, a huge investment was required and at that time it wasn't seen as necessary because the other nuclear technologies were quite adequate. It also lacked any weapons applications, so that's seen as a factor as well. That is, that's the other virtue of thorium. It, you, you cannot use it as easily, anywhere near as easily for weapons. Mm. And so um, it, you can have, talk about a peaceful solution to the world's energy problems. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is that China brought its first modular high-temperature gas-cooled reactor online in December last year. Um, this is the world's first pebble-bed modular high-temperature gas-cooled reactor, which uses helium instead of water uh, to drive the turbines and also therefore requires little to no water for cooling. And this pebble bed design means that if the cooling does fail, it has an inbuilt passive safety system that prevents the reactor from overheating. So it's actually impossible for it to melt down. Well, so just to explain that, the, these pebbles of uranium are in a, are in a chamber with a, with a bung at the bottom. The, 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 cha the, the, the reactor operates at a very high temperature, higher than what normally re normal reactors do. If it goes above that temperature, the, the bung is made of a, a material that can withstand, you know, withstand that temperature. But if it goes above that temperature, the bung melts and all the pebbles fall through and there's nothing left to react anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? There's no, there's no actual source of fuel for a fission reaction to be taking to be place. place yeah. right? And so um, it's, the, it's the ultimate fail-safe in nuclear power. Um, now, in terms of nuclear across the board in China, um, China has 53 operating reactors, 18 under construction, and plans to build at least 150 new reactors in the next 15 years, more than the rest of the world has built in the past 35 years. The other thing is fusion. So this takes the next step. So a fission reaction comes from splitting the atom, yeah. as they say. A fusion reaction comes from forcing them together to create energy, and it's even more powerful. It's what goes on in our sun. Um, and what China is putting into place now and they're building is a hybrid fusion-fission reactor, and they want to have this connected to the grid by 2028. Um, now, 
what it will do is it basically the fusion will stimulate the fission and the fission power will go into the grid. That's what they want to do by 2028. So it basically takes nuclear waste, wax it with the fusion reaction and that will unleash the fission to get into, go into the grid using what's called a Z-pinch machine and we'll put up a video in the background. This is a machine that can store a huge amount of electricity and release it as a pulse in nanoseconds. So that's the initial process. By 2035, they want to be putting fusion power directly into the grid, not using that hybrid mechanism. Now, apparently Japan, well, definitely, Japan, the US and the UK are also pushing for commercialization of fusion power. But, you know, this, this is a big step and would have an enormous impact for the entire world having that kind of source of energy cheap energy once the setup is done and clean energy as well and abundant That's you're right. never going to run out of it the resource right? that you use to produce it is readily available yeah even in even in you know 200 million years time whoever the alarmist is then he comes along and says oh we've reached peak fusion he'll be laughed at because you're never going to run out of it mm. right it is the ultimate um uh solution and we've been working at it for a long time um, the fact that it hasn't made the fundamental breakthrough is not because fusion doesn't work, it does work. We've documented over the years how they gutted the funding for the programs. They didn't do a Manhattan-style project on fusion like they did on fission or like they did on the space program. If they did a, program, a project like that, a Manhattan-style project, you just threw everything at it, watch something, watch something um, uh, be discovered, right? But anyway, so look, these are incredible breakthroughs, incredibly exciting opportunities. And Australia can do all that, right? Um, uh, why is China prioritising this sort of thing? Because this is the future. And instead we've got clowns like Chris Bowen getting up in Parliament and ridiculing um, uh, nuclear power using a handbook from the 1980s. Well, it's not the 1980s anymore. We know a lot more. It was, it was still good then, but we know a lot more. And the irony is um, because... The China syndrome is, is actually nothing to do with the, it's not a dig at China, it's just the idea that, you could, that these power stations might melt down and you know, if you dig a hole deep enough, you're going to end up in China. Um, China is protecting itself from the China syndrome because nothing can melt, it can't melt a hole to itself by building the safest power, pl power plants in mm -hmm. the world. <laughs> <laughs> so again, we've written this up in our Australian Alert Service newsletter. Um, if you haven't seen it before, we'll send you a complimentary copy, give us a call. Uh, otherwise, get online, subscribe, join us in one way or another, get your writing kit out, <laughs> get your computer out, write we're, your letter. We're, we've raised important issues that it all comes down to what the viewer is prepared to do. Mm. Right? Engage on these issues and we will win these battles. And the big one is we get a postal bank, we've got to stop, we've got to defeat the war on cash. Yeah. So that's it for this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. And see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.